Last night, as news emerged of President Trump's missile strike against a Syrian airfield, Twitter quickly began examining Trump's old tweets from 2013, many of which opposed the possibility of action in Syria by Barack Obama. He tweeted, What will we get for bombing Syria besides more debt and a possible long-term conflict? Obama needs congressional approval. He also tweeted, The president must get congressional approval before attacking Syria. Big mistake if he does not. And then there was the re-examination of Senator Ted Cruz's position on American involvement in the Syrian conflict. In 2013, Cruz said that Assad's chemical weapons Weapons use was, quote, not a direct threat to U.S. national security and added that such behavior was, quote, well outside the traditional scope of U.S. military action. Now, Cruz is silent on Trump's airstrikes, adding, quote, I look forward to our commander in chief making the case to Congress and the American people. In 2013, I was one of the people who opposed Obama's pre-stated pinprick strike. I tweeted at Hugh Hewitt, lobbing missiles into Syria without decapitating the regime strengthens both Assad and the mullahs. I also wrote in a column around that time that Obama's strategy was destined to fail because he had no credibility to uphold. He was negotiating a deal with the Syrian sponsor state Iran. He was undermining American allies all over the region. He was making the only standard for intervention use of chemical weapons while ignoring all of Assad's other war atrocities. So, what's changed between 2013 and now? Three things. First, Trump can reestablish American credibility. Obama had already blown American credibility out of the water for four years by the time Assad gassed his own people. It was obvious to everybody, Democrats and Republicans, that not only did Obama lack a plan in Syria, he was looking to launch a few missiles to silence criticisms of his pathetic foreign policy. As I tweeted then, hitting a few donkeys in the rear in Syria wouldn't do anything but make Assad look stronger and the United States weaker. The same is not true of Trump. He's a brand new president, a man of mystery on foreign policy, a coherent plan of action following a strong immediate response to a chemical attack can help reshape the map in different ways than Obama could in 2013. Second, the Russian-Iranian axis is now operative in Syria. After Obama handed over control of Syria to Russia in 2013, I wrote this, quote, Thanks to President Obama's statements in August 2012 regarding a Syrian red line on chemical weapons use in Syria, the United States was faced with three choices in Syria. Depose Assad, do nothing in order to prevent al-Qaeda from taking over the country, or, as John Kerry advocated, push for an unbelievably small action in order to reinforce America's credibility. The third option was probably the worst. But in a truly awe-inspiring display of his foreign policy genius, Obama has found a fourth option, appeasement, complete with international weapons inspections it rejected just a week ago. In 2013, our geopolitical interests in Syria were significantly less important than they are now, thanks to Russia's aggressively reshaping of the Middle East. Obama handed over power to Russia in Syria, thereby helping complete an Iranian-Russian axis that now spans from Iran to Lebanon and then backed Iran through his idiotic and evil nuclear deal that made Iran a regional power again. All of that is creating a safe haven and base of strength for Iranian-backed terrorists, strengthening Putin's hand as an expansionist dictator, and even creating an incentive for countries who oppose Iran and Russia to covertly support ISIS. Blunting Russia's ambitions in Syria without drawing us into a war with them is a worthwhile goal. Third, the map does not look like it did in 2013. Here's a graphic of control of Syria in 2013. You can see those blue dots up in the top, those are the Kurds, and then you see the red dots, that's the, the opposition, and the black dots are the government. Now, here's a map from March 2017. Okay, you can see the black there is ISIS, the red is the Syrian government, and the yellow is the Kurds. Note the geographic divides. Note also the new clarity about the identities of some of Assad's rivals. In that first map, you didn't know who his rivals were. Here, you know a lot of them are ISIS. This means that America's strategic goals have changed. Now it's no longer about deposing Assad, per se, which was always a questionable goal given his terrorist rivals. America has no interest in intervening in the middle of the Syrian civil war. We do have interests regarding Assad's dominance and fighting ISIS. Russia and Assad are not 
not interested in fighting ISIS. That was always a fantasy of pro-Russian isolationists. Our best policy at this point is to contain the region without serious intervention, kill as many ISIS members as possible, along with friendly countries, and to deter major human rights violations, if possible, while emboldening the Kurds in that yellow northern region. That's why Trump's first strike matters. But it won't matter unless he has some sort of strategy to back it up. If he doesn't, it will be precisely the same as Obama's proposed pinprick strike and will have been a counterproductive rather than a first blow toward restoring American interests on the world stage. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All righty. So, obviously, a ton of news to get to. Neil Gorsuch has now been confirmed. He is now going to be on the Supreme Court. Good for Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. I didn't think he was actually going to do it. He did invoke the nuclear option, did what he was supposed to do. Good for him. We also get to a full analysis of what is happening in Syria. Is it good? Is it bad? Or are we undecided? But first, I want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Bolin Branch. So, as somebody who is a really light sleeper, a really poor sleeper, there's nothing that I appreciate more than the bowl and branch sheets that are on my bed. It's B-O-L-L and branch.com. These are the most comfortable sheets I've ever owned. I've bought, I think, three separate sheets sets from Bowl and Branch because they are so comfortable. They're organic cotton. But, you know, they, they, they are, I, all I can tell you, I don't know that much about sheets. I don't know that much about thread count. What I do know is what feels good and what breathes at night and what is comfortable. You know, people always say things like, well, this has a 1,000 thread count. Okay, the thread count apparently doesn't mean anything. That's just talking about the density of the threads within a certain amount of space. But what you do is you drive past a gas station in L.A., they have a, a sheet set, and they'll say it's a 1,000 thread count, and you buy it, and it's just actually like a plastic tarp. Bolin Branch sheets are the best quality sheets. There are three ex-presidents that sleep on them. I sleep on them as well. They are fantastic. They're the most comfortable sheets I have ever owned. Um, I've encouraged my parents to get them as well. Bullandbranch.com today. Go use the promo code Ben, and you get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets, plus free shipping when you use that promo code Ben. A set of sheets like 200 bucks there, um, which is significantly less than it costs for a real luxury brand, and Bull and Branch is indeed a luxury brand. You get 50 bucks off your first set of sheets, 50 bucks plus free shipping right now at bullandbranch.com, B-O-L-L and branch.com. Use that promo code Ben so that they know that we sent you, and you get that $50 discount off your first set of sheets, plus the free shipping. Okay, so big news last night. The Gorsuch thing, we can wait till later to discuss, but it's not huge news because we knew all week that they were going to confirm Justice Gorsuch. Big win for President Trump. He fulfills a campaign promise. Big win for Mitch McConnell, who fulfills a quasi-campaign promise. It is a big thing. I don't think it's as huge a thing as some people make it out to be because I don't think the Supreme Court is as huge a thing as some people make it out to be. I've said that in the past. I will continue to say that. But it is big that Scalia's seat is maintained for originalism as opposed to being converted over to a leftism activist seat as it would have under Hillary Clinton. So I got that one totally wrong during the election cycle. I said I thought that Trump would appoint somebody who is not conservative or at the very least Mitch McConnell would not ram Trump's pick through. Uh, over the over the filibuster, uh, and obviously I was wrong. So uh, good for Trump, good for Mitch McConnell. That's great stuff. But the big news, obviously, is that we are now involved uh, in a war in Syria. How much are we involved? Not particularly much. Last night, uh, about would have been about six o'clock Pacific time, uh, we get the news that the United States has launched fifty plus, I think it's fifty nine. Uh, Tomahawk missiles from the Mediterranean Sea to a Syrian base, an air base that was apparently the source of the gas attacks that happened earlier this week on Syrian civilians that Trump saw and that made him very, very upset. Here's a little bit of the footage of the strike. So you can see there's the the ship launching a Tomahawk missile. Pretty cool stuff. Uh, 
and uh, and then the the actual impact of these of these missiles was pretty marked. They they destroyed I think six planes on the ground. They they knocked out the usefulness of the airbase. Uh, there are six Syrian airbases, so this did not cripple Syria's ability to actually go out and, and perform gas attacks or weapons of mass destruction attacks. But it was a sign that Trump is not going to sit there and do nothing. And it was a marked contrast to, to President Obama, who after a Syrian gas attack in 2013, he basically sat around and did nothing, dithered, tried to blame Congress, and then finally handed over control of the whole situation to the Russians. But it has raised a number of really important and interesting questions. The first question, I think, is, was the strike worthwhile? Was it something that was worthwhile? And Again, I go back to what I just said a few minutes ago. How worthwhile the strike was is going to depend on what comes next. So, in 1998, Al-Qaeda targeted the, the U.S. embassies in Tanzania and Kenya and killed hundreds of people. And Bill Clinton's response was to shoot off a missile at a chemical weapons factory supposedly in Sudan and hit a camel in the ass. And that was basically the end of it. That obviously not only had no impact, it actually was counterproductive. It convinced bin Laden that the United States was a paper tiger. We weren't going to actually do anything. And led to 9-11. If you just do these sort of symbolic measures that aren't followed up on with with any sort of real cohesive policy, then nothing actually matters here. It doesn't it doesn't matter. Um, David French, I think, gets this exactly right in National Review. He says, if this is the only strike, unless it was extraordinarily and unusually effective, it has little chance of materially impacting the Assad regime or the course of the civil war itself. Even if it persuades Assad to refrain from dropping gas bombs, he'll doubtless continue his campaign of mass murder with barrel bombs, cluster bombs, area bombing, and mass executions. And as I just said, you know, the idea that you can do a pinprick strike and that's it, uh, you know, whether this is effective or not, we, we, we just don't know the answer yet because we don't know what Trump is going to do yet. Second question, did Trump tick off his base? A certain part of his base, absolutely. You know, Ann Coulter is very upset this morning. Paul Joseph Watson at Infowars has declared himself off the Trump train. Milo Yiannopoulos says he's angry with daddy, predictably enough. Um, and, uh, and folks like Mike Cernovich are, are very angry about this as well and claiming that anybody who backs Trump on this thing. Anybody who thinks this isn't the worst idea in the world should join the U.S. military, uh, to which I say to to people like Cernovich, well, you seem very concerned about Pizzagate. Why don't you go join the D.C. police force? You know, the idea that you are concerned about something happening in the world, and this is the, the rationale, you must join the military if you care about persecuting a war or prosecuting a war. You must join a police force or the border force if you want people to do their jobs. That's silly. But the reason that so many people are upset is because there are a lot of people who bought into the original concept of Trump as sort of a Ron Paul isolationist. And what Trump actually is, is an isolationist who, if he gets pissed off, fires missiles at things. That's that's all the evidence we have so far. We don't know that he's now an interventionist. We don't know he's somebody who plans. And this is the great debate. What Trump did in Syria last night, was that something where Trump is actually now going to shift his entire policy on Syria and pursue something that's more coherent and cohesive? Or is it going to be a situation where Donald Trump basically earlier this week said, everything is fine in Syria, don't care what Assad does, Assad gasses a bunch of people, he sees it on TV, he says, oh, those poor babies, and then he goes and he shoots off a bunch of missiles, and then that's it. If that's it, that's not going to be good, but we don't know the answer yet. You know, that, that seems to me the most plausible solution here is that he doesn't have a coherent strategy. The only reason I say that is because there are members of the Defense Department who are already saying this was a one-off, that this isn't going to be something that is repeated, uh, and they have yet to roll out what their strategy actually is. But there's a lot of confusion. So let's start with what happened before all of this. So in 2013... Donald Trump was very militant about not getting involved in Syria. He had a series of tweets in which he specifically talked about this. He tweeted, um, if we can get those up, he said the president must get congressional approval. 
before attacking Syria. Big mistake if he does not. We'll talk about the constitutionality of this in a second. Uh, and then he also tweeted that if the U.S. attacks Syria, it'll be a terrible idea. He says if the U.S. attacks Syria, this was September 2nd, 2013, and hits the wrong targets, killing civilians, there will be worldwide hell to pay. Stay away and fix broken U.S. And yet now he's involving himself. And then he also tweeted, uh, President Obama, do not attack Syria. There is no upside and tremendous downside. Save your powder for another and more important day. So a lot of his supporters took that seriously, and you can't blame them. He said during the entire campaign that we never should be involved in Syria, we should never be involved in Iran, we should never be involved in Iraq, we should basically bring everything home and focus on building roads in Iowa. That's, that was sort of his take. And so if you look at a lot of his supporters, they have a reason to be upset with him today, because obviously that was not his position. He saw something on TV, uh, he heard intelligence reports, and then he decided to act. And we'll have to see how, you know, we'll have to see how much he ends up acting. Bob Corker, senator from Tennessee, he says that he was excited that this happened because he was worried Trump might just make a cheap deal over Russia. Patron Putin and Russia. I heard UN Ambassador Nikki Haley criticize Russia. I have not heard President Trump uh, hold Putin or Russia responsible in any way. He's been far more critical of Barack Obama on this issue than Vladimir right. Putin. Why? Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I have seen, by the way, an evolution even in Russia. I'd like to see more. Um, I, look, I'm just being honest with you. I was very concerned in the beginning that there may be an attempt to do some cheap deal with Russia relative to Ukraine and Crimea in Syria. And I don't think there's any chance of that now. I think the president is, the longer he's in office, the more he has people coming in to see him from other countries. I think that he's developing a body of knowledge and experience that uh, will keep anything like that from occurring. And he'll have an opportunity to see firsthand right now. So we'll find I mean, is out. Is Putin going to stand? We'll find out. You know, Putin is, is getting very militant over Syria. Is this a one-off where Trump backs down in the future? That's possible, too. We just don't know what's going to happen. But you can see the flip happen in real time. So earlier this week, Tillerson said that Assad could stay in power. Then he added that now he's saying after that gas attack that Russia was complicit or incompetent in preventing the Syria gas attack. There's information that Russian agents were on the ground as they were organizing the Syrian gas attack. He also is now saying that there are steps underway to remove Assad altogether, which is precisely 180 degrees polar opposite of what he said earlier this week. Assad's role in the future is uncertain, clearly, and it, with the acts that he has taken, it would seem that there would be no role for him to govern the Syrian people. And so what steps is the United States prepared to take in order to remove him from power? Well, the process by which Assad would leave is something that I think requires an international community effort, uh, both to first defeat ISIS within Syria to stabilize the Syrian uh, country, to avoid further civil war, and then to work collectively with our partners around the world through a political process that would lead to leaving. So will you and President so Trump... So we can stop it there. I mean, but th that obviously is a flip in position. I want to talk about all these various positions, but first I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Legacy Box. So it may come as a bit of a surprise to those of you who know me in this podcast. I am not the most sentimental human being. I once forgot my own birthday. My dad, though, he's a total sap. Yeah, he's manly and he's my hero, but he's a sap. He cried at the end of Terminator. Yes, really, Terminator. My mom has always said that if the house is on fire or underwater or falling into the San Andreas Fault, my dad would probably be inside the house trying to save every box of family photos and every film he could find. 
Now we have legacy box. We don't have to worry about my dad burning or drowning or falling into the abyss with an armful of boxes trying to save all the family memories. It couldn't be easier. You just send your old pictures, films, videotapes to legacy box. They put them on a DVD or a thumb drive, and that saves them forever, makes it convenient. They're preserved. They're ready to watch. They're ready to reshare and relive if you're sentimental, which I'm not, mostly. Legacybox.com slash Ben. Make sure you do that. You get that 40% discount on your order. Yeah, my kids are the best, by the way. Uh, and uh, LegacyBox.com, again, use that slash Ben and get that 40% discount on your order. That's LegacyBox.com slash Ben. Great service, something I really recommend for you and your family. Um, and uh, use that slash Ben so that they know that we sent you as well. Okay, so there are really a few different positions that are emerging on Trump. All we know about Trump is that Trump was deeply affected in, in, in an emotional way by what happened in Syria. So here is what Trump said after speaking uh, on last night after the missile attack. My fellow Americans... On Tuesday, Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad launched a horrible chemical weapons attack on innocent civilians. Using a deadly nerve agent, Assad choked out the lives of helpless men, women, and children. It was a slow and brutal death for so many. Even beautiful babies were cruelly murdered in this very barbaric attack. No child of God should ever suffer such horror. Tonight, I ordered a targeted military strike on the airfield in Syria from where the chemical attack was launched. It is in this vital national security interest of the United States to prevent and deter the spread and use of deadly chemical weapons. There can be no dispute that Syria used banned chemical weapons, violated its obligations under the Chemical Weapons Convention, and ignored the urging of the UN Security Council. Stop it right there. This is there is Years. some irony to this. If you're a Trump follower, and Trump spent the entire his entire campaign ripping on George W. Bush, saying that George W. Bush was a warmonger. If you recall, what was George W. Bush's excuse for going into Iraq? It was use of chemical weapons by Saddam Hussein on his own people, the possibility of future use of, of weapons of mass destruction on Americans and others across the world, upholding UN sanctions against. All of this. Yeah, and that's exactly the same template that Trump is using here. So people have a right to be upset with Trump if they were against the Iraq war. And now they say, well, what happened to the Trump that we knew and loved here? The fact is that isolationism runs up against reality, not only because you see nasty pictures on TV, but because it turns out that there are nasty forces in the world from Iran to Russia who are interested in maximizing their own power at the expense of U.S. power. And that's really where America's interest lies here, not in the human rights violations, which are terrible but exist all over the world. It really lies in the idea that a strengthened Russia that has an impact in broadening the sphere of influence for Iran and for and for places like places like um, Lebanon and Syria and Assad, that the, when you do all of this, you're heightening the chance of war against America's allies, war against citizens of the West, and, and terrorism against citizens of the West, and Assad has been complicit in that. Now, all of that said, basically there are three solutions, three possible things that can be done here. 
and we'll talk about all of them. But for that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com and subscribe right now. $8 a month gets you a subscription over at dailywire.com. Right now, if you get a subscription, then you can watch the rest of this show live, plus be part of the mailbag, which is happening right now. You don't get to be part of the mailbag and have your questions answered unless you go to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. Also, you get to watch Clavin's show live and be part of Clavin's mailbag as well. Plus, I promise there are more goodies coming up for members in the very near future. And if you become an annual member, you get a a free signed copy of a Michael Knowles' Reason to Vote Democrat, a comprehensive guide, a masterwork of political thought about leftism. Uh, It is the most thorough book on democratic thought ever quasi-penned. So pick that up uh, by becoming an annual subscriber over at dailywire.com. Or if you just want to listen later at iTunes and SoundCloud, then uh, go over there and check it out and make sure that you leave us a review at iTunes. We always appreciate it. We are the most popular conservative podcast in America. So there's basically three strategies that can be pursued here. One is the Marco Rubio, John McCain, Lindsey Graham strategy, and that is the we should actually put troops on the ground and overthrow Assad strategy. I do not favor this strategy because I don't think that they have a replacement for Assad, and I think that the idea the Russians are just going to stand by and watch us overthrow Assad without actually creating uh, all sorts of casualties against U.S. troops that we would have to invariably put in harm's way, I think that's a mistake. I don't think that's worthwhile. Goal number two is what a lot of the Trumpkins, you know, the people who are really ardent Trump advocates want to do, the alt-right. These people basically just want Trump to stay out of it, let Russia run the thing. If they want to gas people, let Russia gas people. Um, What's amazing about this is that Trump actually hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't involved himself in anything deep yet, but people are losing their minds over this. Ann Coulter, who's a friend of mine, but she says Trump was not elected to go to war in Syria, and she's very upset about this. We need a little me time. We need to save America before we can do anything for the rest of the world. And in most of these savageries around the world, um, you know, we're just coming in at one moment in an ongoing bar fight and picking the guy who's on bottom now. But, you know, wait a few years and the other group will be on top savaging the other group. That's right. Why are we doing... Let's just hope (laughs) Trump's base will remind him... Okay, so she thinks that this is the worst thing that ever happened. There are a lot of people who are very upset about it. Again, all he did was fire some missiles at a guy who just gassed children. Okay, so at the very least, even if you hope that it's just a pinprick strike, maybe you say, okay, glad he did a pinprick strike, shows he's a tough guy, and move along. But the idea that, that there should be no consequences whatsoever, you know, that's that's a little bit troubling, although I get it. I do get that idea. There should be no consequences if you're not actually going to have a plan there, and you shouldn't have a plan because who cares? That's sort of the, the alt-right reaction to all of this. And then there's the, the element of the alt-right that is actually just openly pro-Russia. That's people like Ron Paul, who's out there saying that basically it was the Syrian rebels who gassed their own people in order to blame the Assad regime. And uh, who, who would benefit? It makes no sense, even if you were totally separate from this and take no sides of this, and you were just an analyst, it doesn't make any sense for Assad under these conditions to all of a sudden use poison gases. It, it's zero, I, I think it's zero chance that he would have done this, uh, you know, uh, deliberately, and, and he's doing this now. Okay, this, this is the, the asinine side of the Internet. This is the Mike Cernovich side. They say that this wasn't even Assad at all. It's all a false flag by the neocons. Paul Wolfowitz is over there gassing Syrian children in order to get Trump to go to war. It is, it is exposing a split in the Trump camp. There, there are a bunch of splits in the Trump camp. This is just another one between the sort of isolationist libertarian side of the Trump camp and the people who are realists and even the people who are more than that. So as I said before, there are a few different things that can be done. One is actually invade and get rid of Assad, not for it. 
Number two, you can try and contain Assad and urge the Russians to get rid of Assad so that we're actually on the same side here. And the way that you do that is either by establishing a no-fly zone, or if you don't want to establish a no-fly zone because you think it's too risky, you do what David French has suggested, and you create enclaves with ground-to-air missile capacity uh, in which Syrians and Russians know they will be shot down if they come over there, and these become basically the refugee centers, and you protect independent Kurdish territory up in the north, and what, and then you fight ISIS at the same time. So that fulfills a couple of goals. It contains Assad. It forces Russia to think whether maybe they'd be better off with someone who's not Assad so that they wouldn't have so much countervailing opinion and countervailing military. Uh, and then on the third, you know, on the, on the third side, uh, you are you are getting rid of ISIS. That's that's sort of my preferred solution. This is what I suggested yesterday. And then there's the alt right side, and that's do nothing. Uh, it appears right now, right now, the the real question is what is Trump going to do next? And it could be any of these three. And if you listen to the rhetoric of the Trump administration, you've heard all three. You've heard Rex Tillerson say Assad must go, but he's not going to put troops on the ground probably. And then you've heard people say, well. And this is the this is one off. We're not going to do anything after this, which sounds like the the isolationist position. And then there's the middle position, which is I hope where he ends up. The we have some strategic interests there. We're not going to put tons of boots on the ground. We don't want to go to war with Russia. We don't want to play chicken with Russia. Russia has obviously invested itself very heavily here. But we're also going to reestablish the norm that chemical weapons use is not okay, and this president is not going to be crossed. And I think that's the proper solution. Now, there's one more issue that has to be discussed here, and that is the constitutional issue. So, so Rand Paul, not Ron. Ron is crazy. Rand is not crazy. So Rand tweeted out a bunch of things about the constitutionality of all of this. And so he said, while we condemn the atrocities in Syria, the United States was not attacked. And he continued, the president needs congressional authorization for military action as required by the Constitution. And he says, our prior interventions in this region have done nothing to make us safer, and Syria will be no different. Okay, so that's probably true unless there is a coherent strategy. And that's one of the reasons the Constitution suggests that there actually be a declaration of war or an authorization of military force. It is not true that the authorization for use of military force applies to Assad Syria. It just doesn't. Okay, the, the 2001 authorization to use military force was directed against global terrorist entities, particularly Al Qaeda. That's not Assad. Assad is the is the sovereign ruler of a nation, even though he's an evil dictator. So the AUMF does not cover this legally speaking. There is a case that there is in, that there is independent constitutional authority for the president to launch military strikes and then afterward go to Congress for approval. That's a very kind of thorny legal issue. It is my opinion that, that Trump, you know, if you're going to say that he needed to do something quickly and didn't have time to go to Congress and didn't want to telegraph what he was going to do, but now he's going to go to Congress, I think that may be the best middle-of-the-road solution here. But if there's any further military intervention, obviously he does need to go to Congress, and he should go to Congress, and he should make the case a coherent case. The reason that in 2013 it didn't make sense for Obama to go to Congress is because Obama only wanted to go to Congress for this pinprick military strike that he really did not need congressional approval for under legal precedent. Even if he got a congressional approval, he wasn't going to get congressional approval for let me fire a, a missile at a camel and hit it in the butt somewhere. If he was going to go for congressional approval, Congress is only going to sign on to a coherent plan so that they have something to be answerable to. You don't need Congress to approve every drone strike that is pursued by Obama or Bush or Trump. That's just silly. So what Trump needs to do now is he needs to go with a coherent plan to Congress, get an authorization to use military force, and then he can go about his business. But first, he needs a plan, and I would like to see President Trump actually come up with a plan, and that is the big question. Does he have a plan now? And the answer is, we have no idea. You know, my bet is on not really, but I hope that he's going to formulate one. Uh, but again, no one knows the answer to this. No one knows the answer to this at all. Okay, time for some things I like, things I hate, and the mailbag. So... Things, uh, so, 
Oh, sorry. So before I do that, I want to say thank you to our advertisers. We have brand new advertisers over at the I Hate My Boss podcast. So this is a really this is a really funny podcast that's about basically advice on how to deal with your crappy boss. No, it does not start Mathis and Austin. Um, they know that I'm the best boss that ever was. They they love me. They love me. Yeah, there it is. There's the reluctant. There's the reluctant nod and, and thumbs up from Austin. Yes, yes, because you're fired if you don't say that. But. They, but if they, uh, if they did have problems with me, then they would go and they would listen to I Hate My Boss. It's, it's all about what you do when you have a crappy boss and the advice in dealing with a crappy boss. And so the, this, this new podcast is about two workplace heroes helping you make the big decisions and sort through the small stuff and get more fulfillment from your workplace. It's about people who go to work and are part of a team, respect their bosses but need escape. You'll meet some characters that you might relate or know. It's, it's actually really funny. What they do is they have a couple of hosts, and the hosts give advice on how to deal with your crappy boss, but then they have also these kind of fictional segments uh, in which it's these couple characters dealing with their boss. Very, very funny, very informative. You go to Wondery.com to listen to it. It's I Hate My Boss and subscribe to it over at Wondery.com or at iTunes or at SoundCloud. I hate my boss. It's workplace drama and comedic relief. You can go and subscribe today. Listen to the newest episode and subscribe. I hate my boss at Wondery.com. I've listened to it myself. It is really funny. And I will just say that I do half the things that the bosses do in this show. So uh, unfortunately for my own employees, uh, they can't they can't say anything about it, but I can. So I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a pretty good boss, but all bosses do. Uh, so I'm probably a mediocre boss. In any case, uh, let's, let's do things I like and things I hate. So things I like, we've been doing French stuff. And so, um, the, 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 we didn't do any French film this week. So French film, Probably the, the best French film of all time. There's a French film that came out, I think it's 1937, called Grand Illusion. Uh, and Grand Illusion was about World War One. What's really fascinating about it, it's kind of a Marxist take on World War One. Basically, it's about these two Frenchmen who are captured by the Germans in World War One, and they are imprisoned in this castle, basically, where all the POWs are kept, and then they have to escape. But it's really much more about class conflict, uh, and uh, it's, it's, it, stalls, it stars a, a bunch of people who would go on to become big stars in, in Hollywood. Uh, this, I think, is a picture of uh, Paul Henreid, who's who ended up – he's in Casablanca, right? You recognize his face from, from Casablanca. Um, because he's the, he's the other guy, not Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. Really good actor. Uh, the, the movie actually holds up really well. It has some people who ended up becoming you know big stars for other things. So there's a German officer who's played by the guy who, if you remember Sunset Boulevard, the creepy butler, he ends up playing him. Um, but it's a uh, – Really good movie. We can show a little bit of the trailer, but you won't understand it because it's in French. So. La Grande Illusion, un aspect encore peu connu de la guerre. C'est, d'après des récits authentiques, la vie des prisonniers de guerre en Allemagne. And this is the Germans announcing to the French that they are prisoners and they better do what they say, essentially. So it's, it's, uh, the, the whole point is uh, it's, it's actually sort of a Marxist work of art. Basically, the idea is that war is an illusion. The only real war is between the classes. This was thoroughly debunked during World War One, and it would be debunked again during World War Two. It was a, it was a fantasy of the left, um, and because that fantasy of the left ended up being not true, we keep falling into war. It turns out that divisions far more than class divisions end up dividing people. Class divisions are, are much more uh, a secondary concern. Okay, time for some things that I hate. 
So Nikki Haley, who is Trump's ambassador to the U.N., she spoke yesterday about how Trump was going to do something about Syria, and then they did do something about Syria. She was actually heckled at the U.N. by a bunch of people who said that she should be letting in um, – it's the Women of the World Summit, I guess. She was asked, what about the refugees? You know, you say you want to do something about Syria, but then you close the border to the refugees. Well, I think, first of all, um, keep in mind that I work for the Trump administration. And if you haven't heard me talk about Russia... Hold on, hold on, stop. We, we got to get people fix these problems, you know? Yeah, I, and we have, I have hit Russia over the head more times than I can count. And it's because if they do something wrong, we're going to call them out on it. And if they want to help us defeat terrorism, fine. But the things they've done um, with Crimea and Ukraine, the things they've done in how they've covered up for Assad, those types of things, we're not going to give them a pass on. And so I have had conversations with the president where he very much sees Russia as a problem. And I think if you look at his actions, you know, everybody wants to hear his words, but look at his actions. The two things that Russia doesn't want to see the U.S. do is strengthen their military and expand energy. And the president has done both of those. And so when you look at the actions, again, you call them out when they do something wrong and you work with them when, when you can find ways to work with them. I, guess I, I, have would, I would find that frustrating. It's like We have to express America's values. We are always the moral conscience of the world. And so our focus is to make sure that we're... There are certain people Refugees. like so, um, the, the Sunset, idea here, and this is, this was parroted by a lot of people on the left yesterday, was well, why does Trump pretend he cares about ch- kids getting gas when he's not taking in refugees? Okay, this is the same sort of idiotic logic that suggests that you don't care about babies after they're born, so you shouldn't care if they get aborted. You're not willing to pay for welfare, for example, uh, and therefore you shouldn't care whether people kill babies in the womb. Two things can be simultaneously true. I can want Assad to stop gassing children, and I can also say that if I can't vet the families of those kids who are coming in, then I am not going to let them in. I'd rather establish a refugee camp somewhere overseas where we can keep tabs on people and where they can, where they can mesh into the dominant culture a little bit better. These are not mutually exclusive propositions. This is another one of these lefty talking points that just doesn't make any sense. Okay, other things that I hate. Hillary Clinton is still out there. I don't know why. And now she's saying that misogyny is the reason that she lost the election. Of course, of course, it's because we all hate vaginas. That's the reason you lost, Hillary. A man who bragged about sexual assault won the election and won 53% of the white women's vote. How is it that in the 21st century, and what does it say about the challenges that one faces in women's empowerment, that in effect misogyny won with a lot of women voters? Well, I am currently writing a book where I spend... (laughs) No one will ever read. Woo! I spend a lot of time wrestling with this. As you might guess, I've thought about it more than once. Uh, (laughs) And I I, I don't know that there is one answer. Let's be clear. I think there, you know, in any campaign, there's so many different cross currents and events and some have greater impact than others. Um, But it is fair to say, as you just did, Nick, that certainly misogyny played a role. I mean, that just has to be admitted. And why and what the underlying reasons were is what I'm trying to parse out myself. 
Okay, so she says that it's, it's, it's all about sexism. Actually, it's about the fact that you spent five minutes in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. That's the reason you lost the election, and you're horrifying. So it's those two things. It is not the fact that you're a woman. One of my favorite campaign stories of the entire year was that there was this, this group that actually redid the debates between Hillary and Trump, but they had a woman play say what Trump said, and they had a man say what Hillary said. And what they found is that people still liked what Trump was saying. They liked it even better coming from a woman, actually. <laughs> it just turns out they hated what Hillary had to say because she's terrible and says silly things. So the, this idea that the reason she lost is because she's a woman is just absolute stupidity. The reason she lost is because she's a really bad candidate. Okay, time for the mailbag, the long-awaited, beloved mailbag. Let's do it. All right, so Mark says, Dear Ben, I saw a headline on the news this morning that read, Chocolate bars must be made smaller due to new health laws regarding sugar intake and obesity in Scotland. I was wondering in a situation where a product can be potentially damaging to its user, who has the onus of responsibility, the user or the producer? Is it just to regulate the producer simply because of an overuse of their product can lead to damaging consequences? So, as you may imagine, I'm not in favor of regulating the distribution of products based on damage to the user. I'm in favor of regulation only when there are externalities. So, the, one of the dangers of Obamacare or any nationalized health system is that eventually I am responsible for your health. Once I'm responsible for your health, I can make you eat a salad. If I'm going to pay for your health care, you don't get to eat everything you could possibly want to eat, become a giant fatso and get heart disease at age 37, and then expect that everybody's going to be okay with that. The next step is obviously that the government will start regulating diet. I'm of the view that if you want to eat a chocolate bar, that's your business. You know, I don't know your life. Maybe you eat a chocolate bar and then you go out and exercise. I have too much sugar in my diet. I exercise a lot. You know, we'll, we'll see how that works out for me. We'll, but the bottom line is that it's my decision as to what I want to eat. I'm not in favor of these regulations that say you can't smoke because it hurts your health. It's your business. You want to hurt your health? Your business so long as you're paying for it. If I'm paying for it, then it becomes my business. Martin Houston writes, hey, Ben. I love your input on religious topics. An atheist raised a question to me the other day, and I was hoping you could shed some light on it. If God asks you to kill someone, would you do it? If the devil asks you to kill the same person, would you do it? What's the moral difference if the result and act are the same? So, in Judaism, there's no such concept as the sort of adversarial devil. So, in Christianity, uh, there's the idea that God and the devil are sort of striving for your soul. In Judaism, that's not what the devil does. So, I have slightly different theology on this than than other folks. Uh, I don't think that the devil is sort of an independent moral force in the universe, Satan is literally the adversary in Hebrew, and the idea is that he's the prosecutor. In most of the Talmud, he's described as somebody who is prosecuting the case against human beings, like in the book of Job. He's sort of taunting God into applying justice rather than mercy, uh, or into seeing whether human beings can withstand their faith. But he's an emissary of God. At no point did he actually have a break from God, and then there's no paradise law situation in Judaism. So the idea that you know, God and Satan would give you the same commands and, and they would have two moral, different moral questions. Uh, that doesn't arise under Judaism. But I think the broader question, which is, can God do something immoral? The answer is, God can certainly do stuff that is immoral according to human standards. I mean, this is one of the great debates in religious circles. Is morality above God or is God above morality? One of the great struggles in all faith is that God is above morality, but we pray and hope that God will abide by the promises that he made to human beings to live within his boundaries that he has set up for himself. And that includes allowing a certain amount of free will in which we can do evil things. Like, God has bounded himself in. If God were boundless, we wouldn't have free will. God has bounded himself in, and he has, re- he has restricted his own behavior in the world. And that means, more often than not, that God is not performing the evil. It is, it is the, the laws of nature that he set up that create a randomness in the universe that, that is performing the evil, or it is human beings themselves performing the gravest evils of all. So the idea that we live in a time where God comes and tells you to kill somebody, uh, would you do it or not, you know, 
again, all religious believers in the end have to say yes, but the, but the difference is that you have to have a religion that says that God would never do that, uh, or that God should not do that, or that God cannot do that. Uh, and that is the struggle. I mean, this is the great struggle, I think, of, of Judaism in the section of the Bible that talks about Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? It's God literally asking Abraham to kill his own son, and so that's an evil thing to do. And that is God's test of faith to Abraham is that it's very easy to be a monotheist who believes in God when God's morality agrees with yours. Will you agree with God's morality and go along with it when God's morality doesn't agree with yours? And Abraham says yes, but with the hope that God will eventually think better on it. And then I think that's the, I think that's what all human beings of faith have to do. Carla says, hi, Ben, huge fan. What do you think are the pros and cons of making Puerto Rico the 51st state? Well, I mean, the, the con really right now is that Puerto Rico is heavily indebted. It's governed itself for a very long time and racked up an enormous amount of debt that would have to be assumed in the end by the federal government. Uh, it would. Uh, it, we're already administering some of the law in Puerto Rico. Uh, I don't really have a huge problem with Puerto Rico as the, the 51st state Per se, I really, I really don't. I think that it's really more a question of making their economy stronger um, and uh, and ensuring that the cultures in Puerto Rico uh, agree with traditional American culture, which I think that in large measure they do. Uh, Val says, "Hey Ben, I've recently seen a lot about how fossil fuels pollute the atmosphere and how terrible that is, but it's difficult to come from a moral rather than purely statistical and logical point of view when debating climate change with people on the other side. Can you explain the moral case for fossil fuels? Yes, the moral case for fossil fuels is that they are cheap, they are effective, and they have raised half the globe out of poverty." That is the case for fossil fuels. In places that do not have fossil fuels, they're still burning animal dung for warmth, which is actually more polluting than fossil fuels. They do not have power. They do not have electricity. They do not have higher standards of living. Fossil fuels have been the greatest single advance in the history of humanity in terms of technological advances. And so the idea that fossil fuels have been a net detriment to human beings is absolutely absurd. Now Dylan says, what is your favorite thing about Clavin? Um, well, I mean, aside from his stunning good looks, uh, I, I love talking literature with Clavin. Actually, during the during the breaks, you know, between our shows, very often we just find ourselves in literature conversations. Clavin is the only person I know who's read more fiction than I have, uh, and so it's it's really fun to talk books with him because he's so literate. Uh, Kevin says, hey, Ben, do you think the recent chemical attack and U.S. response will convince major European nations such as U.K., France, and Germany to become more involved in the Syrian war? Um, I think that with U.S. leadership, it is possible that they will commit to a to a concerted mission in Syria, but they're not going to commit to overthrowing Assad. Nobody at this point is going to commit to overthrowing Assad because they still have people to go home to. And, uh, and after Iraq, I don't think that one's on the table. Uh, Abigail says, do you think saying black people are generally bigger than white people is a racist thing to say? Where do you draw the line on what is statistical fact and what is racist? How do you explain the difference to a leftist? Okay, so statistical fact is not racist. Statistical fact is statistical fact. Um, I mean, it is a statistical truth that there are more black people in the NBA than white people. That is not racist. That is a statistical truth. It is also a statistical truth that an outsized percentage of black people are committing an outsized percentage of murders in the United States. That is not racist. That is a truth. The point, the reason that people get more upset about the second statement than the first is because they're assuming that what you're saying is that there is a biological component that links black people with murder, that it's because of their black skin that they are committing murder. That is where you where you cross the line into racism, by saying that there is an inherent connection between the color of your skin and the things that you do, which is why it's so hilarious that the left is constantly shouting racism when their entire case in the world is that black people must vote Democrat because it is inherent in you as a black person that you must vote Democrat and hold certain political values. I don't believe any of that. I think everybody is an individual. That is the difference between racism and statistics. Statistics just say a certain percentage of people do this. A certain percentage of people do that. Racists say 
A certain percentage of people do that because biologically their race drives them to do that because there's not evidence for that. There is evidence that culture drives people to do certain things. Robert says, Ben, do you think atheism will ever become the majority viewpoint in America? Do you believe it is worthwhile trying to combat atheism or should we just live and let live? Well, I mean, both. I think that live and let live and also combat atheism. So, you know, I have no problem with atheists. I think that there is a a case to be made for for agnosticism. Um, You know, all that said, I think that it's very bad for a society when atheism becomes the predominant morality because atheism is not a, a moral system. It's a system that is supposed to basically reject the primacy of the individual human being in the end because we're all just we're all just here and there's no moral system that governs us per se. You can let's put it this way. Atheism can have an individual libertarian streak, atheism can be leftist, atheism can be anything, but Religion, Judeo-Christian religion, has a very specific set of cultural values that attach to it, uh, and that's very important as the foundation of Western civilization. Kyle says, do you think Democrats filibustering Gorsuch will come back to bite them in the butt? That entirely depends on Trump. That entirely depends on Trump. So it'll bite them in the butt in that Trump will get another pick, probably, and Trump will then have the opportunity to actually push another another judicial pick without having to worry about the filibuster. The question is, will Trump go for a consensus pick because it'll be a swing vote, or will he go for someone solid? I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, I have my hopes and I have my suspicions, but that's really up to Trump. Final question here, right, guys? Uh, so Tom says, Dear Ben, why is trans- transgenderism a mental disorder but not homosexuality? So the easy answer to why transgenderism is a mental disorder but not homosexuality is that transgenderism makes a claim about the world that is materially false. Homosexuality does not. So this is, you know, this is the easiest distinction. Transgenderism says, I am a woman. No, you're not a woman. Transgenderism says, I feel like a woman. Okay, but it says more than that. It says, I am a woman and I must be treated as a woman. That is a delusion. You're not a woman. You're not a female inside a male body. None of that is true. Homosexuality says, I am attracted to a member of the same sex. That is factually true. Okay, so there's, you're not at war with reality. You may be at war with prevailing cultural norms. You may be at war with social norms. You may also be at war with, uh, you know, with, with you know, associated conditions because homosexuality is associated in heavy measure with, with the rates of depression in the homosexual community are much higher than they are in the straight community. But that does not mean that homosexuality uh, is in and of itself a mental disorder. But transgenderism, which makes a claim about the universe that simply is not true, is a mental disorder in the same way that anorexics who say, I am skinny, I am fat, when they are actually skinny, that is a mental disorder as well. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the mailbag. I'm glad we got to do a Friday show, guys, because a lot of crap happened last night, and it's been a very, very busy day, so busy news day. Uh, pretty soon, I think, we're, uh, I don't want to make this pledge you know, in advance, but I think that within the foreseeable future, there will be a Friday show much more regularly. Uh, there will be a Friday show next week. Uh, we will have a Monday show next week, but not a Tuesday or Wednesday show, because Tuesday and Wednesday are the first days of Passover. Um, but we will see you on Monday, so be back here for your latest updates. I am Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. <laughs> We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So, 
I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.